your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 27 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying an iced mocha raspberry coffee, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the murder of Emma Walker. High school relationships can be a complete whirlwind. They are new, exciting, and often uncomplicated by the stresses of adult life. In a devastating number of cases, however, these relationships can turn out to be toxic, dangerous, violent, and even deadly. Such was the case for Emma Walker, a beautiful 16-year-old girl from Knoxville, Tennessee, with big dreams and a bright future. Emma was found shot to death in her own bed by her mother, Jill, on November 21st of 2016, and the investigation quickly turned up a name, Riley Gall. Riley was Emma's recent ex-boyfriend, a possessive and controlling presence in her life, and the evidence against him was so overwhelming that an arrest was made in mere days. Emma's story is horrible, but unfortunately is one of many, so it is important that not only her name continue to be heard, but that we continue to make ourselves aware of potentially dangerous situations, because it really can happen to anyone. Emma has been described by many as bubbly, bright, popular, and extremely friendly. At 16, she was living in a single-story home with her parents and her brother in Knoxville, Tennessee. She was a cheerleader at her high school, and she was actually the only freshman to make it onto the team that year. She was also an honor roll student, and she held a part-time job at a local supermarket in addition to doing volunteer work for an animal shelter. Emma was an extremely kind person, and this carried into her goals for her future. She had big dreams of becoming a NICU nurse after college. On November 21st of 2016, Jill Walker, her mother, awoke around 6.15 a.m. and headed to her daughter's room to wake her up for school. This was earlier than she usually woke up, but Emma had asked her mom to get her up early so that she could wash her hair before school that morning. When she got to her daughter's room, however, 16-year-old Emma appeared to be fast asleep, face up under her blankets, but when Jill attempted to wake her, she got no response even when she tried shaking her daughter's leg. Immediately, something seemed off, as Emma was usually really easy to wake in the mornings, and Jill started to get the sense that something was very wrong. She reached to check for Emma's pulse on her neck, but didn't feel anything, and immediately got on the phone with 911. This sort of medical emergency seemed completely out of the blue, and there wasn't anything immediately visible that would indicate what had happened to Emma in her room. In an episode of 2020 that reported on this case, Shot in the Dark, one of the responding officers to the scene said that the situation was tagged as a possible suicide when they did respond, but there's not much to indicate why they would think this other than just the lack of visible evidence of an intruder or an attack. Officers could, at first, find only a small amount of blood on Emma's pillow until they noticed something much more alarming, a small bullet hole in the wall next to Emma's bed really close to her pillow. Looking closer at Emma's body revealed that there was a bullet wound behind her left ear. This was a wound that would have caused her to die instantly. There was no weapon in the room, so officers assumed that this shot came from outside the house, and this was confirmed when they found a shell casing in the yard only about five feet away from the home. Further searching revealed another shell casing as well as a live round, And knowing then that two shots had been fired, officers found another bullet hole in Emma's room. This bullet had been fired from a different location, through a different wall, and was found lodged inside of her pillow. Emma's room had two exterior walls, and bullets had come through both of them, but both rounds were fired at the same place, 
at her bed. They were also fired at the same height, so investigators could assume that both shots had been fired by the same person. All in all, the scene was completely chilling. Emma had clearly been directly targeted by someone who knew enough about her to know the layout of her room. Somehow, no one who was in the Walker home that night knew that shots had been fired. Emma's father had woken up at one point when he heard a sound similar to that of a door slamming, and he did look around the house, even into Emma's bedroom, but nothing looked out of order, and if it was the gunshot that he heard, he would not have been able to notice any of the blood on her pillow, especially in the dark. Additionally, some neighbors believed they had heard noises resembling gunshots at around 3 a.m., but no one had reported anything amiss at this time. Now operating with the knowledge that Emma had been murdered, police were speaking with her family and friends to try and establish a better idea of Emma's life, noticing immediately in these interviews that the name Riley Gall was coming up a lot. Riley Gall was Emma's ex-boyfriend, and this was a very recent breakup. He was 18 years old at the time and a college football player for Maryville College. The two had been together for two years prior to this breakup, Meeting in 2014, when Emma was a freshman and Riley was a junior, he was a wide receiver on the football team, and he was well known around school to be a bit of a Star Wars nerd, and he actively attended church. This was the classic high school relationship, cheerleader and football player, however that did not at all mean that it was perfect, though they did enjoy a lot of the same activities, especially paddleboarding together, this was very on again off again and they started to fight constantly as the relationship went on. After the tumultuous two years, it seemed that Emma had finally had enough and that this breakup was intentioned to be for good. Based on the reporting that has been done on this case, it seems that over the course of those two years, Riley had become increasingly controlling, always wanting a say in what Emma was wearing, who she was spending time with, and even what she did on a day-to-day basis. Emma's mother reported that there were times where he would stand outside of her workplace for hours just waiting for her shift to end and this is just one of many concerning behavior patterns reported. One of Emma's friends told Dateline something particularly concerning, that if Emma went somewhere without Riley present, receiving tens of calls and up to a hundred text messages was not an abnormal occurrence. After Emma and Riley would have a fight, he would sometimes post to her social media accounts saying some pretty awful things, like how much he hated her or how she was dead to him, and Emma's friends were picking up on this as well. Despite these comments, Riley never missed an apology, and Emma generally would forgive him and take him back soon after these incidents. Perspective in relationships of this nature, especially with teenagers, can be extremely difficult, so Emma's friends had been sensing these red flags and urging her to end things for a while before Emma realized that she did not deserve that sort of treatment. Emma's parents, Jill and Mark, were extremely concerned about the relationship between Emma and Riley, but nothing they said was able to reach Emma, and the more they seemed to try, the more strained and difficult those conversations would become. When nothing was working, they decided that the only option was to take Emma's phone and forbid the two from seeing each other. But the young couple, as they always do, kept finding ways to spend time together regardless. Out of desperation, in October of 2016, Jill and Mark grounded Emma, allowing her only to go to school and cheerleading practice and monitoring her movements as she was doing so. At this time, Riley had graduated and started college while Emma was still in her junior year, 
so the two no longer had the opportunity to see one another in the school hallways. By mid-November of 2016, Emma and Riley had officially broken up, and Emma had told all her friends and family that it was definitely for good this time. Potentially dangerous teenage relationships are not as uncommon as we would like to think, and I do want to take a moment here to share some of the typical warning signs, especially since so many of them were recognized consistently by the people in Emma's life. These can include, but definitely are not limited to, a significant other who is checking someone's phone or accounts without permission, extreme jealousy, gaslighting and manipulative tactics, emotional outbursts and sudden mood swings, possessive or controlling behavior, and intentionally isolating a person from their friends or family, and this can be physical, financial, or emotional isolation. This is an extremely important aspect of Emma's story to understand. So the show notes for this episode are going to include various resources for teens, parents, and advocates on the subject of teen dating violence. All those close to Emma said that Riley had been taking the breakup really hard, and this became apparent in several ways in the weeks that led up to her death. Two weeks before she was killed, Riley's friends took him to the hospital after he overdosed on pills, and he was physically okay following this incident, but did start seeing a counselor after he returned to his campus a couple of days later. Emma's friends did not have much sympathy for Riley, however, believing that this was just part of his plan to manipulate her into rekindling the relationship. On the night of Friday, November 18th, Emma had been allowed to go to a friend's house for a sleepover, and this was the first time that she had been able to hang out with people for weeks, so she must have been really excited for a night in with her friends. That did not last long, however, and around 11.30pm she started to get texts from an unknown number. These said that Riley had been kidnapped and threatened that if Emma didn't come outside alone, he was going to be harmed. Understandably really freaked out, Emma went outside, but not by herself, and when she didn't see anything, she went back into the house, figuring that Riley and someone from his college were just messing with her. Her phone kept going off, though, and they were insistent. Quote, we have him now. If you don't care about him anymore, then it shouldn't bother you. Call the police and he dies. Your choice. If you'd like to hear his final screams, give me a call. He's in a ditch beside her house. It's a shame you can all of a sudden not value someone's life. End quote. Other texts that she received on that night read, quote, Come outside alone if you don't want to see a loved one get hurt. End quote. And, quote, go to your car with your keys. Go alone. I've got someone you love. If you don't comply, I will hurt them. End quote. Emma did go outside again, but this time Riley was actually lying face down in the ditch described in the message. Riley got up, acting confused and holding his head, asking questions like, Where am I and what happened? But there was nothing about this situation to legitimize it, and Emma saw straight through the ruse as well instantly furious with Riley for it. At this point, she really only wanted Riley to leave her alone. The police were not contacted at this time in regard to the incident. In psychology, this sort of action on Riley's part is known as manipulative victimhood, which, according to Psychology Today, is, quote, often to exploit the recipient's goodwill, guilty conscience, sense of duty and obligation, or protective and nurturing instinct in order to extract unreasonable benefits and concessions, end quote. 
Essentially, Riley was trying to use Emma's kindness to manipulate her to jump to his rescue, and most likely, ultimately, to get back together with him. Emma was able to put the incident behind her, and no one heard from Riley for the rest of the night, so she just went home as normal the next morning, which was November 19th. She was getting ready to leave the house to meet her mom when a horrifying knock came at the door from a man dressed all in black. He wasn't just knocking, either. He was pounding on the locked door, seemingly trying to get in. Understandably terrified, Emma actually texted Riley, saying, quote, I hate you, but I need you right now, end quote. And he came to the house right away, almost as if he was waiting by his phone, looking through everything and finding no sign of this potential intruder. Just like the incident the previous night, the police were not notified of this at the time, but Emma did tell her mother, who thought that the whole incident was just another setup by Riley, and that Riley was the man dressed in black. All of this being said, in the investigation now, police were left with two theories to pursue. Either there was a stranger who was stalking Emma and had ultimately killed her, or the person who was responsible for her death was Riley. They really did try to give Riley the benefit of the doubt in this investigation. However, things started to look really bad for him really quickly when police realized that Riley's grandfather had only just filed a report that his gun had been stolen, and this was a 9mm weapon, the same type that had been used to kill Emma Walker. His grandfather didn't intend to get Riley in any sort of trouble by making this report. Rather, he was worried that because of the recent overdose, Riley was trying to harm himself. The investigation caught another break when two of Riley's friends, Alex McCarty and Noah Walton, called police to share some concerning interactions of their own. Alex claimed that Riley had shown him this stolen gun, saying that he needed it for protection because someone was after him and Emma, while Noah said that Riley had called him to ask him how to remove fingerprints from a gun. These two boys said that they shared the same concerns as Riley's grandfather, that Riley was going to try and harm himself. Detectives decided that the next best step was to interview Riley themselves, which only added to the growing theory that he was responsible for the murder. His behavior during this interview was incredibly weird. He never even said Emma's name, only referring to her as, quote, the girl, or, quote, the girl who passed away, end quote. He denied any involvement with the kidnapping incident or the man at Emma's door, and even gave a brief story of the kidnapping, essentially claiming that he was grabbed and forced into a car where his phone was stolen from him. He said that he had really been trying to get in touch with Emma over that weekend, but she was ignoring all of his attempts, so he tried using a friend's phone to contact her on Sunday night, and this was the night before her body was discovered in bed. From his account, Emma told him to stop calling and then blocked the friend's number as well. Riley denied stealing the gun, and even when the detectives tell him about the calls that they had received from Alex and Noah, he claimed that he had never showed Alex any gun and he had no idea why he would say something like that, and that he had asked Noah about the fingerprints because his roommate wanted to know. His alibi wasn't very convincing either, and his claim was that he had spent Sunday night into Monday morning on campus, besides a short visit to his grandparents' home in Knoxville. He logged into his school account from his grandparents and then drove right back to school, only to sit in front of the athletics building in his car for hours just looking at photos of him and Emma. 
He said, quote, I sat in the parking lot outside of the athletic center, just sat there for about two to three hours, and just looking at pictures of us and stuff like that. I sent her a text at 12.55. I just told her how much I loved her and that I was sorry she didn't want what we had anymore, and she was going to do great things in the future. And that is why I was going to leave her alone after that. I fell asleep around then, and so I woke up to the call about what happened, end quote. Convenient, right? He does seem to change this story, too, a little bit later on, saying that he went to his dorm room at 4.30 a.m. to sleep until morning. Phone records from that night, however, gave Riley away almost immediately and showed that he was in Knoxville from 12.30 a.m. to 3.45 a.m. on November 21st when Emma was killed. With suspicions now higher than ever, police honed in on their search for the gun that they believed Riley had stolen. They didn't have enough evidence to hold him without the murder weapon, so all they could do for the moment was keep an eye on Riley's activity. On Tuesday, November 22nd, Alex and Noah, Riley's friends, reached out again. This time, they told police that Riley still had the gun, and that he had told them that he needed to get rid of it. Riley had tried to convince his friends that he hadn't hurt Emma with the gun, but that he was concerned police would be able to implicate him for the murder if they found it, but no one was really believing anything that Riley was saying at this point. That evening, police set up a bit of a sting investigation with Alex and Noah, giving them microphones and a video camera that was hidden in a key fob before they went to meet Riley. They invited Riley over, and they did talk about the murder for a while, reassuring Riley that they knew he was innocent, and Riley asked them to help him get rid of the gun at the bluffs. The bluffs was a wooded area where they would be able to just throw the gun into the Tennessee River. They drove to Riley's stepfather's house to pick up the gun, and for Alex and Noah, this is when things began to get really intense. Riley had retrieved a garbage bag from the house, but they didn't know if the gun was really in there or not, and no arrest could be made until Alex and Noah had physically laid eyes on the gun, which they finally did only once they reached the bluffs. Noah sent a message to police who were also listening in to confirm that they had seen the gun, and it took less than 90 seconds for officers to arrive at the vehicle and arrest Riley. A search of this garbage bag provided further damning evidence against Riley, Gloves, black clothes, and sneakers blacked out with duct tape, and police now assume that these were the clothing items that Riley was wearing when he went to knock on Emma's door to scare her. A full two years after his arrest, Riley finally stood trial, where he faced seven separate charges, first-degree murder, felony murder, especially aggravated stalking, theft, tampering with evidence, reckless endangerment, and using a firearm while committing a felony. He pleaded not guilty, but the defense took a bizarre angle once the trial actually began. They decided to admit that Riley had fired the gun at Emma, but they claimed that he had never intended to hit her, essentially trying to change the nature of the crime from first-degree murder to reckless homicide. Riley said that he was trying to scare her into calling him for help so that he could play the hero in the situation for Emma, claiming that he didn't even know the bullets would go through the wall. And this doesn't actually seem all that unbelievable considering his behavior before her death, but at the same time it would be an incredibly stupid mistake to underestimate the firing power of a gun pointed directly at somebody's bed. 
The prosecution told a different story entirely, believing that Riley wanted Emma dead and that he went to her house with that intention in mind. They argued that his anger over the relationship ending, as well as Emma blocking his number and refusing to speak with him anymore, was just too much for Riley to bear. Essentially, if he couldn't have her, no one could. The jury had no sympathy for Riley and only deliberated for four hours before returning a guilty verdict on all charges, and Riley was sentenced to life in prison, the automatic sentence in Tennessee for a first-degree murder conviction, with 51 years before the possibility of parole. During sentencing, he said to Emma's parents, quote, I'm sorry I took Emma away from you, that I robbed you of the experience of watching your daughter grow up. What I can do is tell the truth about that night. I wanted to scare her. I never meant to take Emma's life. Again, I'm sorry, end quote. And today, Riley is still incarcerated at the Northwest Correctional Complex in Tiptonville, Tennessee. Emma Walker's life was tragically cut short at the hands of a boy who she had loved, and her story, devastatingly, may be closer to home for each of us than you might think. According to the Guidance Center, nearly one in three teenage relationships are characterized as either unhealthy or violent, due in large part to their still-developing emotional and mental maturities. Teenagers especially seem to be vulnerable to manipulation, and teen dating violence can leave a lasting impact on overall health, opportunity, and well-being. Emma deserved the chance to chase after her ambitions, to enjoy the rest of her years with her friends and family, and yet it was all taken from her in a single senseless act. Though justice has been served in her case, this is one such instance when real closure is not really attainable, and all we can do is look to those around us who may need support and offer every help that we can, and hopefully fewer stories will end so tragically. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the murder of Emma Walker, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at crimebistropodcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.